0: Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you, Eric. So we have been
1: walking through Galatians, and I hope you have seen from Paul how clear it has been that we are not saved through the law, that is, by our own righteousness, but only through Christ's righteousness, through the gospel. And our only hope, as, as we've been singing about and just talking about regularly, is Christ alone is our hope. He alone is the means by which we have the power to live this life by faith. And so, as Paul says in verse 15, he provides for us a human example. And this example highlights, I'm going to call it law lessons, three lessons that we learn from the law. The first is we read scripture as God's unfolding plan. We see that in verse 15. And then second is that we remember promises precede the law in verses 17 through 18. And lastly, verse 16, we rejoice in the singular. And I I know when you read this text, it it seems a little complex. You know, there's, there's a little grammar in this. And so kids, it's important to learn grammar. I know you think, why am I learning about different cases and subjects and um, all these things, but grammar actually is significant to help us understand what we are saying to one another. And for Paul, he's saying the grammar actually matters in Scripture, in the Bible, and you'll see why, hopefully. But first, I'd like to look at this first lesson, the idea that we read Scripture as God's unfolding plan what I'm going to do is take verse 15 and then sort of infer from it. So here's verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. To understand verse 15 and really this whole passage today, I'm going to emphasize this first point, that we have to read the Bible, Scripture, as God's unfolding plan from Genesis to Revelation. And for most of us, we didn't grow up reading the Bible that way. We tended to read it on its own sort of little text, little passage. And so we can flip through the Bible and come up with one verse and say, this applies to me. I would say that to do so is to really miss out on what the Lord wants to show us through God's word. Because when you see the Bible not just simply as a small little passage, but rather as a long picture, story of God's plan, it just makes scripture sing to you. It makes it astounding and truly the treasure that you, you dig for and hope to find. Another way to describe this idea is that uh, this scripture that we hold is a redemptive historical plan. There's a history to it, meaning time from past to present to future, But also, there's a redemptive part of it. God is saving. God is redeeming. He's changing. He's transforming. He's doing a work. And so all of that is happening as you read the Bible. It's unfolding that way. And without having this perspective, you're going to misunderstand what God wants to show you. I want to give you an example. It's actually a real example. Happened to me not that long ago. Um, And it's so important why if we don't read scripture this way, it can lead to serious problems. I was having a conversation recently with someone, not a person in our church, just to let you know, and this person believed that interracial marriage was a sin based on the idea that God had commanded the Jews not to marry outside of their race. So let's read a passage like Deuteronomy 7, 1-4. through 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Now I was having this conversation with this person and they were telling me that the Bible is pretty clear that you should not marry another race. And if you do, you're disobeying God and they would have referred to a passage like this to see, to say, see, Israel was commanded, don't marry outside of your race. In fact, there are many um, people, you know, fundamentalist evangelical Christians who believe this, actually. So this is not an uncommon idea. In fact, it, it was quite common, particularly in the American South, but not just in America. Throughout much of the world, actually, is this idea. Now, here's the question. Doesn't the Bible actually say that in this passage? It seems to me actually say that. And so the logic behind it is if Israel is commanded God's people not to marry outside of your own race, then surely that applies to everybody, not just for the Jews. And that's the problem. When you don't read the Bible historically redemptively, when you don't see it as God's unfolding plan, but rather everything is within its own little part, or to use a bigger word, pericopy, when it's not seen that way, um, and it's only about that, then we sort of um, microscope it into that, and we say, this is what the Bible's saying. You should not do this. And that leads to so much misunderstanding and misinterpretation. And first of all, just from the passage itself, I think we see the answer to this question because verse four says this, for they would turn away your sons from following me. If we just put that verse back onto the screen. verse four, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And that shows there's a reason. Here's the reason. When you look at Israel's history, they were a small people chosen by God, and just brought sovereignly, providentially from Abraham, bringing him out of Ur, bringing him to Canaan, and then him having sons, and then his, his one son, Jacob, who he changes the name Israel, has 12 sons. There are 12 tribes now as they increase in number, and they create the people of Israel. They formulate the people of Israel. But they are literally the only ones in the whole world who worship God. Yahweh, the covenant God, the God who they have relationship with, the true God, the only God. And all around them are these different peoples. And these peoples worship all sorts of other gods. And what God is telling Israel, unique to them, is that if you intermarry with these people, what will happen is that they will lead you to turn away from me, without a doubt. And God knows that He knows that full well, because He's God. And we see this happening all throughout Israel's history. Forget about Deuteronomy. So, what God constantly warns them is not that they should not commingle their blood physically and intermingle their DNA, because that is in and of itself a sin. Rather, what God knows is that they are going to worship other gods and turn away from Him if they marry these neighboring peoples. And so it was not about a purity physically, but much more about a purity spiritually. And God being God knew full well that they would turn away. But you don't understand that unless you understand the historical redemptive picture. You understand it from the concept of the church. I mean, we see this even in Galatians. Actually, in this very chapter at the end of it, Paul will say, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. So clearly for Paul, for the New Testament church, Christ abolishes and breaks down the dividing wall, even with ethnicity. But that's something that's understood through the unfolding plan of God. If you're just going to try to understand it within its small little scope, you're going to have all sorts of misunderstandings. And this is just one example Well, Paul gives this other example. This other example is that there is a human um, relationship, a human example that he describes as an example of covenants. His point is that once a covenant is ratified, it cannot be changed. A similar idea for us would be, say, a last will and testament. And you might think, well, wills can be changed. Of course they can be while you're still living. But when you die and you had a will that was ratified legally, it can't be changed. Now it can be contested and that's why lawyers come in and uh, you you hear about sibling fights and all these things. But really the will itself cannot be changed once it's been ratified, the person's dead. And in Paul's day, in his jurisprudence, Regarding Roman law and Greek law, it couldn't even be changed once you ratified the will while you were living. So, ratification was a, a clear reality that once it happened, it never changed. And so, this is Paul's point God has a plan, He makes a promise. He makes a promise to His people, it's called a covenant. And this plan, once God determines and says, this is how it is, this is so, it cannot be changed. It is sealed in blood. And in his day, in Abraham's day, the way it was sealed, as you know, the animals were cut in half, there was blood poured out. That blood was the ratification process, the sealing process that says, this cannot be changed. This will forever be. And so God is the guarantor We must never think that as God is a guarantor of a promise that it can somehow change. Now keep that in mind because that leads to the second lesson. Remember promises precede the law. And look at verses 17 through 18. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul makes a really critical point here. If the law and all stipulations comes 430 years after the covenant that God made with Abraham, guaranteed by God, ratified through blood, if that came 430 years, then how does the law that Moses was given supersede that promise. That's Paul's point. It actually can't. And if that promise is only received by faith and not by works, as Paul said earlier in verses seven through eight, this is what he said, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So if this is all true, then how can the Galatian Jewish Christians be so confused, bamboozled, really, into thinking that, well, no, it's your works, obedience to the law that makes you righteous. You can see why in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, right? We saw that. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That is. Jesus was publicly crucified to become a curse for us. Why? For failing to uphold the law. For us who fail to uphold the law. Therefore, by faith alone in Christ, can we enter into God's presence? Can we be called sons and daughters? Can we be called Christians? And it's not going to be based on our own righteousness. Now, next week, we'll talk about Okay, so then why do we have this, this law then? It, it seems to always work against us. Why the law? Save that for next week. But the place of the law is this it does not make us righteous, not at all. But our instinct is to think it does. You know, I was, uh, even as we were here worshiping and praying, I was just in my mind as I'm um, praying and worshiping. This thought came to my mind. I was just thinking, oh, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if my, uh, how, if my kids are praying. <laughs> so I o- opened my eyes and looked, and one of them was folding their legs, and and uh, and I thought, oh, you shouldn't fold his legs. Oh, <laughs> shouldn't fold your legs when you're praying. And you shouldn't have your hands in your pocket when you're praying. So no, I gotta, I gotta tell them, don't fold your legs. Don't put your hands in your pocket, pay attention, put bow your head. Now, let me ask you, should you fold your legs when you're praying or put your arms like this? Or should you be folding your hands and putting your head down? Absolutely. I think that's great, right? But here's the problem. If all I do is just simply say, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that. And I'm not saying for younger children, there is a place for that, to teach. But if it's just do this, what will happen? They will do it. But their hearts aren't changed. There's no yielding to God. There's no sense of saying, I I submit myself to the Lord. What you really want is that person in their heart to say, I am communing with the living God. And so I'm going to to bow my head as a symbol, as a sign of my submission. I'm going to lay prostrate on the floor as the reality that I surrender it all. But if I'm focused on the law, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this, you need to do that, and I can actually accomplish that action and behavioral change but there's no internal change. What is that? It doesn't save or makes them make that person righteous at all. In fact, it doesn't make me righteous either. Do you see how the law does not change actually too much of your heart? It can't, but that's our general MO. We are just constantly operating with that mentality. And I tell you, I experienced, I wanted to share that with you because as I was about to say something, I thought, this is exactly what I'm preaching on. <laughs> the lo- I'm doing this right five minutes before I'm about to preach. It's just so much of who I am, and I can't get away from it. So what's my hope? I have to run to Christ. My hope is to repent over my own sense of self-righteousness, to realize that I'm a sinner saved by grace, there's nothing I can do to change a person. doesn't mean that I don't say anything, but it might take a lot more conversation, a lot more questions, a lot more empathy, a lot more mercy. That's a hard thing. And the Judaizers, they're coming into the church saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. We all, I mean, that's why they're Christians, right? So we're not talking about, well, they're Christians. They have the language. They know Jesus They say he did rise again, but they say, but you also need this to be faithful. You also need this to be righteous. You also need this to be loved by God. And if you don't actually do these things, if you don't actually get circumcised, obey the food dietary laws and restrictions, do ceremonial cleansing and ritual cleansing, if you don't do all these things, then you're not really a a, a true Christian because true Christians would do those things. And so Paul is saying, you know, who's bewitched you, foolish Galatians? I mean, you started with mercy. The promise came 430 year, years before the law. Why are you trying to li- live as though the promise is not real, but the law is real? Every day is a fight against our desire to live by our own efforts, our own righteousness, as I shared just now, every moment. Even when you're doing faithfully righteous things, there's still within us this desire to say, I need to do this by my own strength, by my own power. I got to change this. It's me. It's all about me. We care more about the result than about the God who empowers us to actually have results. Like I care more about wanting to get rid of anger. Maybe if you're struggling pornography, you're thinking, "If if I just get rid of that, then everything will be okay. No, it won't be because the heart is actually what's causing that, and we're so fixated on the end result, the morality, the behavioral patterns of being a Christian, but we forget to see actually that it's something in here that's causing this. It's those are secondary issues, and again, it's not to say that those things aren't important. Anger is a sin, lust is a sin, lying is a sin, stealing is a sin. But if me as a Christian is trying to help someone to to actually overcome those things, and I'm so fixated on the action rather than the heart that's causing the action, then I will never be a means of God's grace to that person because what they need more is to see the beauty of Christ, to to be in awe of what he has done, and to constantly go back to him. So listen to what C.S. Lewis says because I think he has some really... (laughs) insightful ideas of what it looks like to be a good, religious, faithful Christian, just like me, just like you. If you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way to ask yourself is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Isn't that insightful? Pride... I give you this analysis by C.S. Lewis because it shows you how deep sin is. It's so deep that we think pride is just wanting more, but it's in actuality always comparing yourself. And that's a killer to your soul, drives you away from the gospel. That's how deep and terrible sin is, if we're honest with ourselves. We can never say it is Jesus plus our works. But that's how we live. It is Jesus plus our works. And that's why the only hope is Christ. Look at verse 18. God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, verse 18 in English is lacking because the Greek word for gave is the word kekaristai. And that word has the word charis in it. For my daughter's name is. Charis, Karis ah, or some of you have daughters named Charis. Why Charis? The word means grace. And Kecaristai means graciously, graciously giving. So it's not just God gave, but God freely, wholeheartedly, with all his heart on his initiative, without any response or anything that Abraham has done, God gave, God kachoristai, he caressed he it to Abraham by a promise. If God should do that, as Paul says, why should we then think that somehow the law and what I do actually is what God really cares about? No, God always gave his son his promise himself and for us to try to backhandedly think well no it's it's got to be me i need to change my behavior i need to be more faithful i need to be more loving I and again if you know what paul's saying what i'm saying it's not that you shouldn't be more loving more gracious more kind compassionate a lover of god's word pray more but the direction by which we do those things is significant. Because if it is, I need to do these things to be a better Christian, and in some way that makes me more righteous. And then, as C.S. Lewis notes, what happens is that in our hearts we start saying we're more righteous than others. And then we start having less mercy for others, less kindness, more judgment, more criticism. The Christian is uh, the growing Christian is growing more in their awareness of God's holiness. (laughs) Admittedly, we're learning this in Sonship, but I think it's so right on, spot on. More in our awareness of God's holiness, which causes us then to be more aware of our own sinfulness, which then drives us to Christ more. See, we tend to think that being a Christian means you don't... you you. As you grow in Christ, you sin less. But what's, what happens when that happens? When you grow in Christ, and if you think you sin less, well, you don't need Jesus as much. Because if you sin less, why do you need Jesus? Jesus is for the sinner. He's for the person who, who actually is always wrestling with sin. And, and if you see C.S. Lewis's point, that's our heart. It's ongoing, and we can't get away from that. Even if we're not going out there physically killing people. So the more we see our sin, the more we turn to Christ, the more we turn to Christ, the more we worship and we're so thankful. And the more it drives us to say, if God, if you should love me this way, then surely I should love others this way. I should be more merciful. And it makes you more compassionate, more kind, more faithful, more a lover of God's word, more a desire to pray more. And that makes it, that humbles you and makes you aware of God's holiness with that, which then... You see more of your sinfulness and so on. So the more you grow in Christ as an older believer, those are the people who are the most humble, most aware of their sin, most compassionate and kind, more gracious. Not because that's somehow conjured up within themselves as a character trait, but rather it's because they see themselves in light of God's holiness and they see the cross as the means by which they can come into God's presence as a son and daughter. Do you see that? There's a big difference between that and the person who says, I gotta be more loving. I gotta be more faithful. Because that's what a Christian does. And we're a Christian family. And my children are gonna obey. And they're gonna... And guess what happens to that person, that family? They are tired. Christianity is a religion. It's duty, responsibility. There's no love. It's dry. It's boring. It's it's embittering. It's leaving people frustrated. And it makes us feel as though we just don't want to do this. And so our, the next generation says, I don't want to live like this. This is this is a miserable life. My parents are always angry. <laughs> they're always upset that they don't get by and they're not meeting the standards that the Bible says it must meet. Of course, there's no joy in that. So if we understand, verse 18, God It to Abraham by a promise. God graciously, freely, wholeheartedly, lovingly, mercifully, kindly gave it. Why should we ever add anything to that type of grace? It's just ridiculous. Whatever will not last ten thousand years from today is ultimately not worth worrying about. 10,000 years from today, what, what will matter? What will matter is your relationship to Christ. And truly, if think of all the things that are burdening our souls right now, will it matter 10,000 years from today at all? What will matter is your heart that is actually being burdened by those things. That's what will last forever and ever. If we can't stop worrying about what is in our hearts, then perhaps we need to realize that that person, that circumstance, that thing means more to you than Christ does. And that's why Paul calls the Galatians foolish and bewitched. Remember, the promise precedes the law. Always remember that. Lastly, let's rejoice in the singular in verse 16. Here's that grammar lesson. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, kids, grammar does matter. It does. And for Paul, here, grammar is critical. Let's look at why. As we saw earlier, the promise is given to Abraham, and this promise occurs in Galatia, uh, Genesis chapter 17, 7 through 8. And in Genesis 17, Paul uses the word that he uses to dis, for, off. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Moses uses the word seed. That's what is literally used in, in the King James Version. It actually says seed, so that's the literal version. Um, NASB says descendants, I think, uh, NA, uh, ESV uses offspring, but here, Paul uses the same word, actually, that Moses used. And in the Greek, he uses the word sperma, which is actually where we get the one word from, and it means seed, literally. So in Genesis 17, the word seed is singular, not plural. And so you can see why the word offspring is used, by the ESV and, and rather than using the word seed, even though seed is the literal word because it it sort of connotes this collective noun. Now here's the problem with a collective noun. And again, here's the grammar lesson, right? It's like the word crowd. If I were to use the word crowd and say the distinction between crowd and crowds, what is the difference? Uh, it was a boisterous crowd versus it was a, there were, they were boisterous crowds. What would be the difference between those two words? Is it one person or many people? Well, you might say, well, crowd sounds like there's a lot of people and crowds sounds like there's a lot, a lot of people. And when you have a collective noun, it actually can sound sort of, are you talking about many people or it, it how do you pluralize a collective noun? That's the real question. That's what grammarians really struggle with in this passage is how do you pluralize? Like Paul is, he's making a a point of singular and plural with a collective noun, which seems odd. Like why would you do that? That doesn't seem to make sense. But I think it makes absolute sense. And here's why. Here's why it makes sense. For Paul... The singular noun, it's obvious. He's making this point to say the offspring singular is pointing to a future offspring person, meaning, and he describes it, who is Christ, right? So Paul's saying the promise that is given to Abraham for his future descendants is actually about a descendant singular. And that descendant as we'll see throughout the Bible, as this whole thread is coming along, is pointing to a very particular person, Jesus. But Paul uses this collective noun to do so. Why does he do that? Because he knows that, one, the promise is fulfilled in Jesus, but secondly is that there is a beneficiary to the fact that this promise is fulfilled in Jesus. And who is this beneficiary? The offspring this group of people, who are those group of people? It's those who receive the promise in Christ. It's Paul's whole point in Galatians is that Israel who receives the promise God's people is seen ultimately through God's people as a whole unfolding throughout history. So it's Jesus receives the promise because he's the fulfiller of that promise. He did everything to make that promise come true but you and I are the beneficiaries of that promise. And so Paul's saying both is happening concurrently at the same time through Christ. Because God is gracious, God says, I'm going to promise this, but this promise is going to come through blood and it's going to come through someone in the future who's going to make ratify this and make this real. And that person is going to be God the Son. But the beneficiaries of that promise, which is going to be so much pain and hardship for one, the offspring, is going to be for all the offspring. We don't bear the punishment, we bear the benefits only. Christ bore the punishment. He became a curse for us. So Paul's making, he's saying, remember the previous verse in verses 13? His whole point was to say Jesus became a curse for us. And now he's going about and saying, Here's a, an example. Now, let me give you another example, a human example. Because if you, the Galatians were so not getting it. They were always fixated on, you have to do these things to be someone who is loved by God. And Paul's saying, Aren't you, are you so foolish? How can you believe this? There's a promise. This promise was given by God, and God paid a price for this promise. It was a Terrible price so that you could be free, so that you could be joyous forever and ever. Don't go back to that. But we do go back. As my example gave over and over and over, we go back to the law. God is gracious to Abraham. He's gracious to all of us because of his son. And this is our unity. This is what we're bound together by. We are inheritors of a promise that was fulfilled through Christ. There is no more Jew or Gentile. No ethnicity that separates us. It's not about marrying or intermarrying or commingling. We have a common status, social status. We have a common race. We are together in Christ. We are God's children. It's why Paul is so strongly opposing this false gospel. It creates a separation in this new covenant, this new community, this church. And it's not supposed to be this way. And the physical picture of this is Peter was sitting with a group of Gentile Christians in some sort of meeting. And then this group of people comes out of a door. And it's these Jewish Christians sent from the Jerusalem church. And as soon as Peter sees it, he gets up and he leaves to sit over there because he doesn't want to be seen sitting with these Gentile Christians. And Paul is watching this. And so what does he do? He stands up and confronts Peter to his face. What are you doing? It wasn't just about eating a dinner or who you want to hang out with. You see, the law would think of it like that. And maybe that's what everyone was thinking. But no, it's about the gospel is at stake here. If Peter gets this wrong, there will be no gospel anymore. There will be no church. And so we have to realize and recognize, one, we are prone to activate our, our hearts towards the law and not the gospel. And If we're honest with ourselves, there is not a single person in this room that doesn't inherently act on the basis of law. We have to battle that and always go back to the promise, always go back to Christ. We run back to him. We confess our sins. We confess our righteousness. We confess the fact that our righteousness is just as evil as our unrighteousness. Our our attempts to be good And to try to add to Christ is just as evil and insidious as any unrighteous act that we see. Rejoice in the singular that brings blessings to the plural, to people like us. Jesus is the ultimate promise bearer, promise keeper. And we get to reap the benefits of everything he did. To me, I don't know why we should ever say, God, you're unfair. I actually think, God, it's, it's more unfair that you would do that. I, I wrestle more with, why would you do that to your son? How could you do this? Why This grace is so astounding. How could we ever say, God, you're so unfair? Even if you were to take everything away from me, though you slay me, as Job says, I will trust you. I hope the gospel of, your, of our Christ, our Lord, sinks deep into your heart. Do you cherish this gospel? My dear friend, I am most concerned for you if you've been raised in the church and you don't think your sin is all that bad. But you're looking at others and saying, those are the bad people. Those are the sinners. But I'm not bad at all. I'm generally a pretty good person. I don't need Christ. That person doesn't need Christ. Let me close with this story. Jerry Bridges tells the story of two men who happened to be kneeling at communion at a communion rail in an Anglican church? Um, one was a former convict who was out of prison, and the other was the judge who sentenced him there, and they're both nailing at this communion rail. After the service, the minister asked the judge, Did you recognize the man beside you? And he replied, Yes, I did. That was a miracle of grace. And the minister asked, You mean, that a man you sentenced to prison should be kneeling beside you? And the judge answered, no, not at all. The miracle is that I should be kneeling beside him. You see, that man clearly knew he was a sinner in need of a savior. But I was brought up in a religious home, had lived a decent moral life, and have served my community. And it is much more difficult for someone such as I to recognize his need for a savior. I am a miracle of God's grace. Do you see that for yourself? Are we so quick to look at and scan the room and see the dregs of society and say, wow, that person really needs Jesus. But have you ever thought that by you being raised in a Christian home, living a good, moral, decent life, you need the miracle of Christ? The miracle of God's grace. You need to see, you, you need a savior. Let's pray. Father, I think I can speak on behalf of everyone here and watching that there is none who is righteous, no, not one. And if we truly examined our own heart, we would be exactly as C.S. Lewis described a person of pride who is never truly satisfied with what we have and when we look around and see what others have we want to be like that or we tear down so that others can't be like that oh woe is us oh lord as isaiah saw when he saw your holiness we are a people of unclean lips